0: gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, and I'm Melody Sederstrom. And yes, I am pleased to welcome back to the program James Corbett. And of course, we know that James Corbett is the founder and editor of the Corbett Report, and uh, he found that in 2007. He then became the editorial writer for the International Forecaster. And uh, of course, we know that was created by the economic uh, analyst Bob Chapman. And that was in 2012. And please, please, please visit his website at com. And, of course, you can also request a complimentary copy of The International Forecaster just by going to their website, theinternationalforecaster.com. Well, good. Well, I should say hello, James.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't guess morning, afternoon, or evening. I think we're in different time zones. But, yes, uh, yeah. good day to you.
0: Good day. <laughs> and, um, you know... I've been trying to start the, the program in a different way past couple of times, and I'm going to go back to my old way. Um, how would you like to start the program? Is there anything in particular <laughs> you would like to share?
1: Well, luckily, I'm ready for this question, so I have, uh, I have a rant prepared. <laughs> okay. Um, let's give your listeners a little sneak preview of this weekend's uh, editorial for the International Forecaster. Terrific. Terrific. I was listening today to uh, the podcast of Ernie Hancock, who does a radio program called Declare Your Independence, and he had a guest, uh, Paul Rosenberg, who is a crypto-anarchist, and and, uh, he wrote The Lodging for Wayfaring Men and other things that some of your listeners might be familiar with. If not, they can acquaint themselves uh, with Paul Rosenberg, I believe. Oh, I don't want to give the wrong address. I believe his site is... uh, freemansperspective.com freemansperspective.com and they were talking about the wake of this Christchurch uh, shooting that uh, obviously took place last week and specifically about the response the New Zealand government response and the telecom response to the people who were either posting the video or talking about the incident or posting the manifesto that this uh, shooter allegedly left and all of this um, and they were talking about the the sort of online crackdown of this, and it w- w- very quickly that conversation got down to the fundamental root of what this is really about. Uh, in a way that I haven't heard articulated very often, so I'm going to be writing about it in some more detail this weekend. But fundamentally, uh, what Paul Rosenberg was was pointing out is we are on the cusp if you are giving these big tech giants your data, we are going to, as human beings, we are going to lose free will. That's kind of a bizarre statement if you're not understanding how to, how to interpret that. What, is, what does that have to do with free will? What does censorship online have to do with free will? What does big, big tech and big data have to do with it? But he was making the point, um, your listeners might have seen last year, there was a leaked internal Google um, video that uh, that Google itself had produced internally and it was for employees to to talk and discuss. And it was called the Selfish Ledger. It was leaked online and now you can go watch it. It's up on YouTube, so you can go see it. Um, but essentially this is talking about how our the, da- the data about our existence, who we talk to, where we go, um, what we do when we get there, what we're interested in, what we're Googling and asking about, is, in an important sense, who we are as human beings. And the more data that is collected about those things, a lot of the more cookie crumbs that are on that trail, the more that big tech giants like Google can actually tell about us and ultimately predict about us. And this selfish ledger video takes it even one step further, because with that data and knowing who we are and what sort of what buttons to push, where where we're likely to go, who we're likely to talk to, the kinds of activities we like to engage in, we can uh, be nudged. We can actually be directed in one direction or another simply by what information is put in front of us or what, what something like Google or, or one of these big tech giants, what they suggest for you here and there. And ultimately, the the more we get bogged into these the smartphones and all these other devices that are constantly telling us well, e- basically everything where are we where where are we going to go how do we get there you know and who are we going to meet there uh, eventually our entire lives will be directed by these big tech giants and this is not some far off dystopian fantasy as paul rosenberg was pointing out we are already there to a large extent people's lives are now being directed one way or another by these devices and these platforms that we're using. And that's such an important point, and not enough people are talking about this, so I really want to highlight this and and underscore it about ten times with seven exclamation marks after it.
0: But, you know, what's frightening about that is when you look to the youth, the millennials, how do you change their, I mean, us as adults in the ages that we are, we see this and we're horrified by it. I mean, this is nothing more than legal mind control. They're controlling the thoughts in order to make you do things and to guide you and place you into a position where they want you to. And we, you know, they talk a lot about robots. Well, the people eventually become robots to some degree. I mean, they're totally controlled.
1: Yeah. And, and you bring up the good point is that to a certain extent, perhaps there are those of us who uh, are old enough that this will not ultimately be, you know, the defining point of our life because we at least remember the time before these devices and these, these uh, services were online. Uh, before there was an online. Um, But, yeah, there's an entire generation growing up now that's never known anything different. And think of the generation after them that will be even further embedded in this, the digital natives, as they're called. Um, That is really the scary part. Uh, I'm not so worried about myself, although I think we all experienced this, this to some extent, but my children who are going to be growing up in this. And and, and it's the matrix. I mean, it is a matrix. Uh, that v- movie does provide a very powerful allegory for the time that we're living in. And it's not, it's not even so analogous anymore, so much as it's becoming reality. People are steeping themselves, in some cases, quite literally into a virtual reality that's being created around them. At any rate, we're getting the concept of augmented reality, where people are going to be walking around with their Google glasses or whatever the next trendy, f- you know, fashion tech trend is going to be, uh, that will be telling them about the world that they are experiencing, and eventually telling them what to think and how to interact in that world. And that's the point at which we stop being human beings and start being automatons, essentially, that are being programmed from the outside.
0: The other frightening thing about that is, I don't see how it's going to change, I mean that is the direction, and i mean if we if we wanted to you know you know predict the future, i mean we're here talking about ah, this interaction the, the control the, the it's not going to change i mean this is going to progress how does you can't reverse it
1: no No, not not going to be reversed. This is not a trend that you can you can reverse because it is going in that direction. And the only I mean the only thing that will stop that in any way is to simply not give the data. And that's becoming even more difficult. I mean at a certain to a certain extent you can ditch your smartphone, you can go offline. I mean, assuming you can even do that, because now, of course, more and more people's jobs literally depend on them being connected in some way, um, but assuming you have the luxury to be able to go offline, it's still, at this point, it's becoming more and more difficult to actually escape it. it uh, as we've found out through the genetic testing, you don't need to have the DNA of every single person in the population in order to map out the entire population's genetic code. You just need enough people if you have enough people that are related to you, then you essentially know your genetic code. If you have enough people who are online and Facebooking and Instagramming and whatever and sending their da- da- data off to big tech, then you're going to be in that matrix one way or another. You just might be the kind of shadow entity. And that, that's something that I've heard from a lot of people when they have gone to sign up for something like Facebook. They've resisted for many years, but they need to for their new job or whatever it is. So they go to sign up and suddenly Facebook that has never had a profile on them ever is suggesting friends to them that they know in real life, but there's no possible way Facebook could know this. How could they know this? How do they know who my friends in real life are? I don't even have their phone number in my phone or anything like that. I have no relation to them, but Facebook knows. This is the kind of thing that we're, we're stumbling into and people are always surprised when this happens, but I think it's because, no, there is this gigantic... Not just the Google selfish ledger about each individual, but it's it's really a, a, a ledger on the entire population that's being constructed right now. And most people don't even know it exists, let alone why that's a problem.
0: And most don't even care. You know, it's just... They're caught up in it, and uh, regardless of the age, the young ones and so forth, it's uh, they don't want to know. There's so many distractions out there. And, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's all kind of all by design, you know, getting the people, setting the people up to their, so that they're just readily able to accept it. And that's all kind of conditioning of the people to some degree. And, you know, I don't know how long this technology has been around, how new it is, and, and so forth. But uh, it's... Uh, Oh, it, well, it. <laughs> I
1: think one of the ramifications of this is that there's going to be a, uh, a splitting off of the population. The vast majority of people are going to be in the first group, and that will be the group that goes along to gets along. I mean, yeah, of course I use Google, I use Facebook, whatever, uh, you know, what's the big deal? Or I, I, maybe even they think, oh, I don't really like it, but, you know, what else can you do? There's nothing else out there. And there will be a very small sliver of the population that is actually invested in getting around these systems, not feeding their data, very specifically not feeding their data to these big tech giants and who uh, embrace alternative technologies and alternative ways of of interacting and, and spreading information online and know about things like VPNs and IPFS and all these other acronyms that probably mean nothing to most people. That very small sliver of the population, I think there is the chance for that sliver to be able to live in something approaching freedom. Perhaps. But that's the only, I think, possibility of freedom that's coming here, and it will be a small proportion of the population.
0: Does this kind of go into, or can you combine what you're talking about now with the uh, recent article you wrote about this is what a demographic crunch looks like to some degree.
1: Yeah, and actually in a weird way. So this is an article that I wrote last week for the International Forecaster that's about the population crisis, the crunch that's coming here in Japan. Uh, As people probably know by now, the Japanese population of Japan is shrinking. It is now a shrinking Country, more people are dying than being born. It's an aging population. All of the things that come along with this idea of a demographic crunch. We've been hearing our entire lives about the overpopulation crisis. Well, here is the thin edge of the wedge of what is really coming demographically, which is an underpopulation crisis. And Japan has a front row seat to this crisis, as with a lot of other crises, actually. Um, so I'm writing about this and some of the surprising ways that's manifesting in uh, in Japan that I experience here every day. One of which that I point out is that uh, suddenly I I often go to cafes to write late at night to write the newsletter, and um, it's just easier for me to to not be at home and distracted by all the buzzing and things, you know. So I just go to a cafe, I get a coffee, I write uh, on my laptop, and uh, most of the cafes around here, there's quite a few of them that are open late, open till midnight, and so I I go there and I type. I, I noticed Hey! Suddenly, this cafe that used to be open till midnight is now closing at 10 p.m. And this one is closing at 11. And this one's closing at nine. And this one. What's going on? All of a sudden, all of these different cafes are all closing earlier than usual. And I, I didn't really put put it together. I didn't realize this was a coordinated thing until later on. I'm reading uh, just a news story here about uh, 7-Eleven is now going to be uh, trialing testing. Uh, opening from 7 to 11, like their name says, uh, instead of 24 hours, which is the uh, operating mandate for 7-11 franchisees in Japan. Well, all the franchisees are saying, um, hey, wait, you know, we can't do this anymore. We need to close earlier. Why? Because there aren't enough workers in the Japanese population anymore. There's a huge labor crunch that's happening here. As part of this demographic crisis, there's just not enough new blood coming into the economy, not enough new workers. And so there is a big labor shortage here, not just in retail, although that is happening. So obviously cafes and convenience stores and what have you are now closing earlier because they literally can't staff their stores. But also it's happening in in construction. It's happening. It's happening all over the economy. And so that was that was sort of the hitting home moment. I mean, we read about things like demographic crunch and shrinking population and aging population and things like this, but that was one of those ones where it kind of hit me in the face. Oh, this thing that is happening that is influencing my life is because of this abstract demographic phenomenon that I read about um, but the more perhaps the more interesting or the more crazy or scary, I don't know how to frame it, um, version of this is another story that I saw recently about a temple in Kyoto uh, here in Japan, which, a a Buddhist temple, that is now, uh, there is now a robotic priest that is preaching to the monks. And you have to see the video of this to understand how bizarre and creepy and weird it is to see all these buddhist monks bowing towards this robot (laughs) priest deity Uh, it's so strange but this i mean this again is in some to some degree a reflection of the demographic crunch that's coming and of course the japanese population is being softened up for the well we can't have you know care workers for everyone. There just aren't enough people to go around, but we can have care robots for everyone. And we're starting to see the robotization of the Japanese economy and everyone getting prepped for more and more robots, robot vending machines in convenience stores or robot baristas at the cafe. They're already kind of rolling it out in a PR kind of way right now, but it's coming in a very real way very soon. And And this, of course, relates right back to what we're talking about, the growing technological grid that is going in around us that fewer people are going to be able to escape one way or another. You're going to have a robot barista serving you your coffee. And of course, again, all of that data about what you're doing and where you're going is, of course, going to be scanned and databased by the facial recognition software and all the other things that are going to be part of this web that's being constructed right now that will all run on the 5G microwave radiation Back background that, of course, is going to fry everyone while they're surveilling you.
0: What is Japan? Does Japan is Japan open to uh, immigration to fill
1: uh, those? Not very I mean, widely. The door is not no, open. Very I didn't widely. think so. Um, but, but that will is those a, doors a, open. That that's a huge and growing political issue here. And in fact, just last year, the Abe government. Uh, put forward some changes to that, opens the door a little bit wider for some migrant workers to come in, some unskilled workers to come in. But uh, obviously it's a huge political issue here and there's a lot of backlash. So yes, technically it might be theoretically possible for an immigrant worker to get into the country, but not very easily, although that is changing.
0: And what is the healthcare? What type of healthcare and how is the healthcare in Japan? I mean...
1: Yes, healthcare is um, universal. It's uh, everybody has to pay into it, and everybody has healthcare here. I, I can attest that you basically never pay. You go to the hospital, you pay maybe uh, a token fee for the the medication you get, but it isn't very much. But the everyone does pay into the system, and it is uh, uh, universal.
0: Okay. Does I mean it work? But well, We're heading into a break right now, um, universally. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Please stay tuned. You're listening to Financial Survival. I'm Melody Suterstrom, and I'm here with James Corbett. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading, one 800 375 That's 1-800-375-4188. Heading into the break, we were talking about the uh, demographic crunch that uh, James wrote about in the recent uh, Corbett Report newsletter. Is there any final comments or conclusions you would like to add to that uh, before we move on? To.
1: Well, I suppose I'll, I'll tell you in a few years, but uh, I mean, <laughs> we, but really Japan is going to get a, a sort of front row seat to the way this is going to play out. And and as I've pointed out on my podcast before, it is happening in a number of different countries right now. There is a, absolute population shrinkage beginning, and uh, we're seeing the the beginnings of this in a lot of countries, and of course, the, the replacement rate for um, birth uh, overall births in a lot of different countries is now below replacement rate. So, um, uh, Korea and and a whole list of other countries, Italy and Greece, and many other places are now falling below replacement levels, and quite uh, quite substantially so. So, again, this is uh, however Japan decides to deal with this is going to be a model, either positive or negative for other countries. But it will be um, be interesting to see the way that this plays out, because of course as I'm sure your listeners are well aware, our entire economic model and and monetary system and everything is based on never-ending increasing debt, increasing global economic activity. activity. And the idea of a shrinking economic pie is just one that uh, the system is not based on and is going to lead to a collapse of the system as it is right now. What will be along to replace it? That's, of course, the big question that we always keep coming back to on this program, isn't it?
0: You know, Chinese leader, um, President Xi Jinping, is visiting Europe this week. He's traveling to France, Italy, Monaco. Uh, the President for Life's tour come as European powers are seeking to strike a delicate balance uh, between uh, concerns about Chinese influence and, you know, further investment. Uh, what do you think, uh, uh, President Xi's uh, real agenda with these nations are? And do you see what type of outcomes are will likely be seen as from his visit.
1: I think primarily this is a a sort of diplomatic softening up of Europe with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative, the big trade infrastructure project that China is engaged in right now to try to essentially connect Chinese markets to European markets. I mean, that's one of the the major um, things that this is ultimately going to end up doing. And I think China, of course, knows that especially in the light of its ongoing trade war with the united states that its bread is buttered on the side of eurasia more so than north america so i think this is part of that um diplomatic tour that the that is happening right now to basically uh quell some of the fears and and concerns that people might have over this and there are mounting concerns as we've talked about on the program before when China was just going around handing out money hand over fist, of course, everyone's taking it. It's only later on that they start to wonder, maybe there's some strings attached here. Maybe this isn't a good deal for us. And one example of that is in Malaysia right now, where um, Mahathir mohammed the 93-year-old prime minister, uh, has basically mixed or put on hold a lot of the projects that his uh, previous the previous prime minister had created with China, uh, on the back of a lot of allegations that he, uh, the previous Indonesian prime minister, uh, sorry, Malaysian prime minister was receiving kickbacks from China in order to um, give sweetheart deals to Chinese construction companies and what have you. Long story short, some pretty major projects, including a major um, uh, high speed train link that was being slated to be constructed in Malaysia has been put on hold. That was a, it was slated to be a $13 billion project. The latest estimates are if they went ahead with it, it would probably be $32 billion, a significant amount of money for Malaysia. And so they're putting the brakes on this and saying, whoa, 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 I think this is, This isn't for our benefit. Uh, Clearly, this is for the Chinese construction company's benefit and maybe for Chinese diplomatic benefit. But what are we really getting out of this? Is this in our own best interest? And I think a lot of countries now are starting to step back and recalculate whether or not all of this seeming manna from heaven that's coming from Beijing is really got great or is there are there strings attached here and so it's in the wake of this and of course right before a uh, a meeting that I a conference on the Belt and Road initiative that I believe is happening next month that uh, Xi Jinping is on this diplomatic tour to try to ease everyone's con- uh, nerves and just say no you know we're here to be trade trade partners with the world and everything's going to be great and fine and dandy and, you know, just make sure that you're on the right side of history because we're going to be the future. So I think that's pr- going to be a primary focus of a lot of the... Well,
0: Malay- Malaysia wouldn't have any... I mean, they, it's not like they can say, okay, we're done with you. <laughs> and no, I mean, no, yes. Hey, I mean,
1: clearly that's a part of the I mean, there's the no one there to replace yeah. China. Yeah. No, I mean, clearly a lot of the countries that are recipients of this Chinese... Aid—it's not exactly aid, but whatever you call it—are um, one way or another dependent on China. So they can't exactly just um, stick a middle finger in their face and walk away. I mean, they're 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 obviously going to be partner trading partners with China. It's just a question of, you know, is this a raw deal, and if so, how much of a raw deal, and should we be standing up for it? And uh, it's just interesting that uh, even a, a relatively close partner like Malaysia would be now standing up and and potentially saying no to China.
0: Was Malaysia in the uh, TPP? I believe was they, were, so. Were they one I of the countries? I so. I'd have to
1: double-check that, but I believe they were one of the countries, yeah.
0: Would, they be ha- would this conversation be if, if the TP was rewritten or, you know?
1: Yeah, that's a hypothetical negative that uh, is hard to answer, <laughs> but, um, but uh, well, I mean, that is one of the... I mean, that's just a reflection, I think, of the overall jumble of competing interests that are happening right now and i think there's a, a growing awareness that southeast asia is uh demographically one of the few places on the in the planet that has a growing young population and thus is seen economically as uh, a driver for growth a global growth in the future and i think a lot of people are trying to get in ahead of that of course one of the interests is the U.S. clearly has an interest in being there economically, business-wise, to scoop up that those new markets. And China, of course, is equally interested. So I think we're seeing a bit of that proxy confrontation, and that's reflected in things like the Belt and Road Initiative and the TPP and other grand projects for trying to steer the, uh, the these countries one way or another when it comes to you know, which side are they going to be on.
0: Um, let's see. Basel Three. Accord, about the banks able to, uh, I believe, march at the end of March. Uh, the rule goes into effect that uh, will allow gold to become fully valued and monetized as a tier one asset for banks around the world. Um, let's see. Uh, well, what's his name? Uh, McGuire. Is it Andrew McGuire? That's right. Andrew Maguire. he argues that the Basel Three Accord is going to effectively re-monetize physical gold, and the price of gold is going to be soaring. What are your thoughts on that, James?
1: Well, that's interesting. I'd have to read uh, McGuire's take on that, because uh, uh, certainly I know, I know about his story, uh, his whistleblowing story, so I think it would be interesting to get his take on it. I haven't read it yet, so I, I don't know about that, but... Um, is it possible? I, I believe it is, but I haven't done the kind of hard research into Basil Three to know whether that's going to be likely. I find it, I mean, uh, just generally speaking, I find it uh, a little bit, uh, there's pause for thought every time I hear about gold is just about to soar. <laughs> because I've been hearing that for a very long time. And I think the real value of gold is in long-term holding and maintaining value rather than looking for some sort of, you know, riches that's going to result from an explosion of the market. But I, I certainly stand to be corrected. And I'm very interested to see McGuire's take on that.
0: I do remember we talked about, I can't, I can't remember if I talked about this with, with Bob because this this, uh, the tier one with gold, um, the three, the Basel Accord three was back in 2012 and um, I remember talking about it long ago, and then it was just forgotten. And they pushed this date up until, you know, the end of March of this year, which is kind of interesting, the timing of it and all. And of course, I'm not sure if uh, Andrew McGuire is the first one who brought it up, but uh, it was it's be- being discussed. And so, it you know, it is really interesting, and, you know, what will the case? I don't know if we're going to have any type of knee-jerk reaction as far as, you know, going up, gold going up April 1st, or if it's going to be a long-term, or what type of yeah. impact it will actually yeah. truly have. So well, I, you know, I I,
1: here's one of the factors that's interesting in that, is that, um, clearly, there are countries that have if not disinvested in gold, at least have not been particularly voracious in their appetite for gold. Uh, The US, uh, England, and others have not really been... I mean, to whatever extent we can trust the official numbers of official holdings, that's a whole other story. But even if we were to take those numbers at face value, they have not been seeking to expand and in some cases have even been shrinking their, their gold reserves. Whereas... We know, I mean, we know that we don't know how much gold China has, for example. We know that we can't trust their numbers, but we do know that after a very long time of them reporting the exact same amount of uh, gold reserves, uh, a couple of years ago, they started admitting that, oh, we have a little bit more this month, and we have a little bit more this month. So they did start um, aligning their numbers something more with reality. It still, I think, remains to be seen how much gold reserve they have. But certainly countries like China, uh, like Russia, um, obviously, like India, have been voraciously consuming gold for a number of years now, and have been increasing their reserves. So, I mean, if we were to see a fundamental change, I mean, obviously, this re- uh, revolves around um, commercial banking and their um, their uh, the, their charters and and what uh, counts as different tiers of capital. But if that has an effect on gold prices to a significant degree, and if gold does return in whatever form, if not necessarily as a a dollar for ounce backing or something of a currency, at least as something that is reflected in um, gold reserves equals a stable currency or something like that, then it's very possible that countries like China and Russia and some of the other BRICS members might come out ahead in this, diplomatically speaking, which from my mind, I mean... Again, this is speculation after speculation, so this isn't a well-thought-out thesis that I'm standing behind. But to my mind, it is interesting that we are, I think, being shepherded into the new multipolar world, where we're going to be asked to believe that the bricks are mm. virtuous, and if not, if not completely spotless, at least better than the alternatives. so we better turn to them. And if that is the case, I mean, we know that they've been arguing for the D. De- Linking of the world monetary supply from the U.S. dollar as a global reserve for a number of years, and China has obviously been angling to at least uh, obviously be included in the SDR basket, the IMF special drawing rights basket, and to be taken more seriously as a global player on the currency stage. So, this could theoretically, I mean, again, depending how this plays out, could be another step in that direction towards. I certainly don't think the Chinese yuan is going to suddenly become the world reserve currency, but it could be a more important player than it is, relatively speaking, um, to the dollar right now.
0: You wrote in your most recent article in the Corbett Report, and... Listeners can go to the report, uh, thecorbittreport.com, and uh, um, follow it and read it. False flags over Kashmir. And we've seen these growing tensions between these nuclear neighbors, India and Pakistan. Uh, we certainly had the suicide bombing in Kashmir last month, and uh, Pakistan struck back. Um, you equate this recent incident to violence in the Balkans over a century ago. And ask what does this have to do with us? You add that we ignore the events there at our own peril. Um, can you tell us a little more about this?
1: Yes, well, uh, the parallel there I think um, I hope is obvious to the audience as I've been talking about on my podcast recently about world war one and um, It's certainly possible, and I think a lot of people in 1914 might have heard about the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo and gone, eh, you know, that's terrible, but whatever, and went about their daily business. Um, Probably some people higher up might have really understood the repercussions of that. But even so, I think there were a lot of people who were caught by surprise that that was in particular the mechanism that essentially... Set the spraying the trap that was World War I, obviously there's a much bigger story as to how World War One really started, but that's kind of the the trigger the trigger moment and so I think it is certainly possible that some sort of incident in Kashmir or some place like that that isn't necessarily in the front and center of the headlines every day could be the the event that sets off a wider confrontation, especially because Kashmir geographically is a place that brings together the borders of China and India and Pakistan, three countries that have all had some tumultuous history and been at war in one permutation or another in, in recent memory, uh, that's, that's a powder keg in search of a match, essentially. And uh, India and Pakistan, of course, always at each other's throats. So all sorts of miscalculations can happen in something like this. And compounding the the most recent skirmish and tit for tat and back and forth is that uh, Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi is up for re-election very soon. And of course, it always plays well with the electorate to look like the big tough man who's taking on the terrorists. So that motivates, he's incentivized essentially to respond militarily to any provocation. And we have a sort of unknown factor in the relatively new Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. So all of this is very worrying in, in what it pretends for the possibility of sparking a much greater confrontation. And of course, again, India and Pakistan are nuclear powers, so that should be something that we all have in mind. But even, even if it were only, in quotation marks, only India and Pakistan nuclear powers in some sort of nuclear exchange, that would still undoubtedly bring in China, which, as I say, is right there on the border, and, of course, the U.S., which is taking an increasing role in being in India's corner in the India-China question, who's going to, you know, dominate Asia in the future? And uh, America has done all sorts of things, even going so far as to rename the Asia-Pacific region the Indo-Pacific region. Basically, there's their way of saying, hey, don't worry, India, we're in your corner. So this, is, this becomes a big international incident very soon, and that's, I think, something we have to keep in mind.
0: I think so. This is not a situation to be taken lightly. And uh, and again, just another hot spot in the world that we live in today. Ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you, James, also. I look forward to our conversations, and we'll talk in a couple of weeks. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, be safe out there, and uh, God bless.
1: 100 years ago, the most devastating war the world had ever seen came to an end. In the craters of those battlefields lay the fallen. But why? What was World War I about? What did it mean? For a century, we have been told a partial history of that war. But now, we can finally learn the truth about the First World War. This is false history. It's not even acceptable to call it fake news. It's just disgusting. So what these people gained was the foothold for world government. And now the time came to slaughter some part of the sheep. The World War I Conspiracy. Watch the documentary for free at CorbettReport.com slash WWI.